Hello, it's Brody. I love bringing mummification to you each week, and if you'd like to support me to keep doing that, you can make a once-off donation through the Acast supporter feature. There's no regular subscription, and your donation will help pay our music license, buy audio gear, and put fuel in my car so I can keep interviewing the amazing women who share their stories with us. There's a link in the show description and episode show notes. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hello and welcome to Mummification. I'm your host, Brody Matner. This podcast is a space for women and parents to talk about how they're feeling. And sometimes they feel like swearing. So this episode may not be suitable for young ears. I had this weirdly formative experience when I was about 11 or 12 where I'd always felt like I was such a strange bird, like I felt like I didn't fit in anywhere because I didn't. And um, then when I was about that age, we went to a family reunion. It's the only family reunion I've ever gone to on my dad's side of the family. And I turned up and I saw that there were all these women who were really ballsy and determined and outspoken. And there was just this vibe, like this really strong vibe, of all these women who had what I wouldn't describe then, but I definitely would describe now as like, I don't give a fuck what you think, I'm going to do what I want, attitudes. And I was like, I my people. Sense. Yeah, for the first time in my life I was like, oh, I actually, this is who I'm supposed to be. But how it's old were you? Twelve. Oh, it took a really long time for me to kind of – I never felt like I fit in anywhere. I was always this odd girl who had too much to say and was too loud and was too much for everybody. And then – and, and like, I'm, one of, I'm the eldest of four kids, so it was always like, oh, you need to fit in with eldest. everybody else. And so then – and, like, there were all these other people in my life all the time. I had to, like, be more compliant <laughs> – which did not work at all, incidentally. I was told to do it a lot. It didn't happen. And then, um, yeah, and so then when I was that age, I was like, oh, I'm not a total freak. I just am what I was supposed to be in the first place. It's just that that's quite a specific thing. So today I am chatting with Eliza. Eliza is a barrister whose principal area of practice is family law. Um, So this incorporates parenting disputes as well as disputes over property and assets after couples have separated. Eliza is also a mummy. Um, Your eldest is nearly two and your youngest is three months. Yeah, yeah. She's two in less than two weeks now, which is a bit mind-bending. Yeah, and my little one is, yeah... Still very tiny. So newbie. Yeah, really new. 
the last three months has been has gone very quickly and also at times very slowly. But mostly, <laughs> I can't quite believe that she's already as big as she is. It's a bit insane. <laughs> Uh, so before we start, uh, we need to make it very clear that nothing Eliza says should be taken and taken as advice. Um, so this is her story and it's based on her own experiences. Absolutely. And um, yeah, so I, I can't give any, any legal advice outside of uh, the spectrum of my actual job. So this is, this is in the context of chat. Um, and I do want to talk uh, a little bit more um, about your career because I think that puts a lot of context into understanding you more. <laughs> Probably, yeah. But first, we'll start with our, our first question. I love the first question. Um, if you were stuck on a desert island and you could take a meal, a drink and a personal item, what would they be? So I found this probably disproportionately easy to answer and I really enjoyed the, the episodes I've listened to, um, which I haven't managed to listen to all of them, but I want to. Why? Um, you have two small children. <laughs> what else are you doing? I have so much time, Brody, so much time. Um, but uh, so my, uh, my drink is soda water mm-hmm. uh, because, I mean, I'm assuming, to be clear, that there is a coffee drip somewhere on the island somewhere. already. That is a given. If there's not a coffee drip, we have a whole other problem. Uh, but assuming that I can get my coffee, um, then the the secondary uh, beverage of choice is soda water, just because I kind of automatically have it all of the time. Um, the meal uh, is a little bit of a cheat in that it's pizza. Uh-huh. But pizza is a whole food group. Um, yes. F- pizza can be a breakfast pizza. Pizza can be dessert. Pizza can be – you can do a lot with pizza. Um, it's also what my family – like I grew up Sunday night was pizza night. We would go to the same restaurant. We would order the same pizza like every week without fail. I think we went to this restaurant. I, I don't feel like it would be an exaggeration to say we might have gone to that same restaurant a thousand times. <laughs> um, and uh, so pizza as a comfort food is deeply embedded in my psyche. Uh, and then the item um, <laughs> um, is very specific. It is a Burt's Bees peppermint lip balm. Okay. Um, you've worked with a lot of families and during times where they're perhaps not at their best – Yep. Um, so how did that or did that affect how you felt about having babies before you had them? So I think it probably did, but I don't know that I knew that it did. I, I don't think you could do the kind of work that – so I've been working in family law exclusively pretty much since after law school. Um, so that's more than 10 years now that I've been exclusively practising with people's families and with – separation and that can be broad brushstrokes but it can also be very detailed and to give you an idea um it can be down to negotiating about what time you pick up the kids after school it can be negotiating about how many hours a week a parent gets to see their kids um well in in fact it very frequently is that particular negotiation but it can be negotiating about all sorts like whether people trust a doctor's diagnosis for their kids um you know, whether a psychological report about how the kids are doing is is something that the court should place reliance on or not. So it would be impossible for me to have spent that much time and energy and, and, and given so much of myself to that career and not have it have an impact on how I thought about what being a parent is. Um, predominantly, I think I, when I decided to have kids for a long time I thought I wasn't probably going to have kids because I saw 
how huge an undertaking it was because I could see the weight of it and the importance of it and how hard it was to get it right. Um, and, and I used to get it right as a general term because obviously we don't. Um, but the idea that you'd you have to you have to really I'm not someone who can half ask things, I just can't. It's not my personality. Um, so I knew that having kids was going to be something where if I was going to do it, it would take a lot from me. And I was already very committed to lots of other things, including my career. So I thought, look, I'm not going to have kids unless I meet someone who's really going to do the work with me. Mm. And I thought I just wasn't going to. I thought the odds that I was going to find a partner who was going to be a real team player and who was going to genuinely co-parent with me in the way that I knew that I was going to need um, and that it was going to feel fair to me and not just the kind of fun stuff but also the emotional labour which I was very conscious of, all of it, I thought, it's just not going to happen. I'm not going to meet that person. That's a ridiculous joke. Um, so I sort of just didn't think for a long time I was going to have kids. And then I did meet my husband and um, uh, because I am me, uh, at the end of our second date, and got married. <laughs> I had not, had not known him before our first date. We met off Tinder. We are, we are a Tinder success story. Uh, at the end of our second date, I said to him, hey, so look, you know, I'm clearly going to really like you. Uh, and just just to be clear, I want to get married and have kids. So if that's not on the agenda for you, let's just not get any more involved now because it's going to be a waste of our time and, like, you know, we're 32. So, And he was like, yeah. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, that's a, yeah, sure. I mean, that's that sounds good. And I was like, ha, huh, ha. Huh. <laughs> that's not what I thought you were going to say. Well, you've had uh, – I was, I was going to ask you a bunch of um, questions about, you know, going back to work and all of those things, but I think we'll get to them later because part of the challenges of your journey <laughs> – well, one of the big ones is that your babies are 20 months apart, mm-hmm. um, which means they're both pandemic babies. Mm. Yep. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to tell people that I basically had pregnancy, pandemic pregnancy. In, like that's the series of events and that's that's what happened. I, I was pregnant with my first baby um, sort of uh, March through December 2019. When the world was normal. When the world was normal. So my pregnancy took place in in what I mentally kind of, I suppose, categorise as my old life. Um, and then my, my daughter was three months old when we hit sort of COVID first lockdown. So I was just coming out of that fourth trimester, mm. really. Um, and so then, um, then there was that. <laughs> And we were living in a very small apartment, the three of us. And that was through until um, December of 2020 when we'd just come out of that, um, what we now think of as that first long lockdown and the world felt like it was back to normal. And we'd sort of said that we were going to have two kids and relatively close together because we weren't getting any younger, blah, blah. And we were like, oh, cool, everything's normal again. We can have another baby. (laughs) (laughs) And then it 
wasn't. Um, <laughs> and so I actually gave birth to my second daughter in the second long lockdown, which when I realised about two weeks before she was born that this was what was going to happen, that prompt, that was that was a very full-on psychological reality to have to deal with. This was To say this was not the plan was the most outrageous um, understatement. And then literally the day after she was born, my elder daughter was with my parents and we were in the hospital and I had a caesarean. And uh, the day after she was born was the day that they announced that we weren't going to have daycare anymore. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> and I, my husband and I were just in the hospital, like that uh, that meme from Brooklyn Nine Nine. That's like cool, 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 cool. <laughs> that was us. It was like, oh, we just we thought it was hard already. We are going home with our toddler, who is twenty months old, and our new baby. And I've just had major surgery, and we can't have anyone. We well, can't have. Well, we we did we have a couple of people who, because I had the Caesar, but only because I couldn't pick up my elder daughter. Um, you could have medically. Care. We could have some care, so we did have that, um, but it was pretty specific and limited, and it did mean we were just all there together all the time, all the time, all the time. We all love each other very much. <laughs> but yeah, so so even with like, even if I had had this like fantasy idea of a like textbook good pregnancy, which I don't know a single person who would describe their pregnancy process like that, I don't think. Uh, well, what were your pregnancies like? So with my elder daughter, she was basically a honeymoon baby. One of the – everyone – I like to think everyone has their things that are, like, their really good things and then their things that are the, the less good things. My really good things were twofold. One, um, and I feel very, very lucky that this is the case, um, I get pregnant, like, ridiculously easily. I suspect it's because there's Irish Catholic in my background and my body is just designed <laughs> that way. It's like, would you like all the babies? It's yeah. like, oh, my God, no, I don't. Two is good. No, I'm we're out. We're out. We're out. Um, but uh, – but yeah, no. So both times I was able to get pregnant immediately, which um, which meant that um, despite my personality type, I had done no research, and that to me is basically like unthinkable that I didn't know anything, um, and I didn't hadn't researched pregnancy. So my whole first trimester with my first baby was like me googling obsessively, like just doing soaps. I needed to know everything. I knew nothing. I probably, by the end of that, knew too much. The second trimester, I got very tired. And it turned out that I um, had incredibly low iron. Uh, by the end of my second trimester, they called me. They're like, cool, so your iron's meant to be like a number with three digits in it, and it's less than five. Oh. And that made a lot of sense to me because by that point, I couldn't walk up the street. Like, I was beyond exhausted but everyone just kept saying that when you're pregnant you get tired and I didn't know so I was like well I'm very tired <laughs> checks but out. story cool. checks yeah, out. story checks <laughs> I am as it turns out very tired um but I was also you know at court pregnant negotiating uh, you actually do quite a lot of walking when in normal times when you're physically at court so there was a really physical element to my job being on my feet a lot. Um, and so I just figured like I'm carrying what turned out to be a big baby uh, and I'm on my feet a lot. But the first two trimesters were really fine compared to the third trimester because when they diagnosed the iron um, 
deficiency, they also told me I had gestational diabetes and that was very hard. Uh, it was, it, it was hard in lots of ways. It was hard psychologically um, to deal with this, this sort of shame of that. I found really difficult this idea that it was, I had done something wrong. Turns out, no, uh, gestational diabetes is about the placenta. It is not about you being fat. It is not about your diet. It's not about anything else. It's to do with the way your placenta processes, changes the way your body processes food. Um, And I had to learn that and then I had to believe it, which were different things. Um, But also gestational diabetes meant that I had to do you know that for, so for people who haven't don't know you go on a really rigid diet and you have to take your own blood sugar reading so like stab yourself <laughs> four or five times a day on an incredibly regimented clock of like you have to fast for two hours and then take your blood and then you have to eat because then you have to fast for another two hours and then take your blood believe and it or not you were tired <laughs> well so there's also so I was already really tired then I had to start doing that and I couldn't just like fast and then eat normally. I had to fast and then eat the stuff you're supposed to eat, most of which I didn't like. But then I was also trying to do this while at court, <laughs> which was not functional because court doesn't care um, that you have this – like there is no flexibility about, about that process. And I was also kind of trying to hide it because you don't want people to think that you're not – 110% focusing on what you're there to do. And also I would have liked to be 110% focusing on what I was there to do, but also had to make sure that I was taking my blood tests at the right times. And anyway, so that was all nightmarish anyway, but then the extra level of nightmarishness to that is that as your body changes and your placenta gets bigger, the food that you were able to eat before and not get your numbers wrong stops being food you can eat because the placenta keeps messing with you. So it was like I'd learned the rules and I'm very rules oriented. Like I'm like, cool. I'll learn the rules. I'll do what I'm told. I'll tick the boxes. Please give me an A plus on my gestational diabetes report card. And then I'd be like, but last week I did this. It was fine. And now this week I can't eat any of these things anymore. Shit. And eventually the, the special diabetes nurse that I had to go and see on top of all of my other doctor's appointments at this time said, um, now nah, your night numbers, even though you're, it's not, you're not ruining things during the day by eating the wrong things, which is good because I was working very hard on not eating anything I wanted to eat. Um, but your night numbers, which have nothing to do with what you're eating, are still so bad that you actually are going to need to start injecting yourself with insulin to get to the end of this pregnancy with about a month to go. And so on top of all of this other stabbing myself, I then had to add in a new regime of extra stabbing myself with the insulin thing at the end of the day, right? That's the point of all of this to some extent is that there are a bunch of side effects that can can happen to the baby as a result of you getting diabetes, the gestational diabetes. But the main thing is they don't want the baby to get too big, right? Um. But also it's possible that you'll have diabetes after the pregnancy if you don't manage it well. So I was very lucky. I didn't have diabetes after I was pregnant and I didn't have it in my second pregnancy. Oh, wow. You have a 50% likelihood, as I understand it, of getting diabetes the second pregnancy if you've already had it. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about the big baby nearly brings me to the end of the pregnancy, which is that when I was about 36 weeks pregnant, we did this extra scan and um, – there were just a few extra bits that they wanted to check out. So like, just go for another one of the, what I mentally refer to as the fancy scans, <laughs> not just the ones my obstetrician did in her office, but the, you know, um, ones where they measure things very carefully and whatever. 
and I will never in my whole life forget, we had a number of appointments lined up in a row at the hospital and we'd been talking about whether I was going to be induced or not, um, how it was all going to go. So we'd had this point with a midwife, talk about induction, go through that whole concept, which I wasn't thrilled about but was like, cool, well, medical advice, sure. And then the scan and then going to see my actual obstetrician afterwards. <laughs> and we had the scan and they don't really tell you anything when, yeah. when they're measuring you in those scans. You sort of get a vibe but they don't give you answers. But because I was going straight up to see my obstetrician, they handed me the report at the reception desk of the measurements as I was going to go to the other level of the hospital with the scan. And I looked at the scan for size of baby, right? And there's this line that's a graph (laughs) from 5th percentile to 95th percentile. And my daughter's head size was about a centimetre off the end of the line. <laughs> and I just looked at it. I was like, Dave, <laughs> thank God he was there because he wouldn't have been able to be there in the later scans. But I was like, Dave, the dot, look, look, this is the, we have, I, this baby is a giant. And he was like, it's fine. We're going to see Karen, my amazing obstetrician. We're going right now. We're going now. Because he could hear my breathing, like I was like not okay. He was like, "We're going right now. She's going to tell us what to do. It's fine. You trust Karen. Karen's great." I was like, "Karen's great. Karen's great. It's fine. Karen's going to tell us what to do." We get in the lift. We go see Karen. Karen looks at the line. We look at the line. Karen looks at the line. She's like, "So let's talk about cesareans." <laughs> and, um, and I was very relieved. Um, but she, because doctors do, she had to go through you know, what the risks were if we went the other direction. But the point where both of us kind of, I think, turned it off white colour and went, cesarean, cesarean sounds great, was the point where she described that if we had the baby not through a cesarean and she got stuck halfway through coming out, that they might have to break her collarbone to get her out of me. Um, mm. Wow, that's... A- full-on piece of information it really was like I still feel kind of nauseous thinking about that um and that was the where like we just kind of looked at each other and went you actually don't need to tell us any of the other things we're good here like it's cool um it actually was kind of a relief the research I had done in my first trimester of research gate had actually suggested to me that I would be very comfortable with a cesarean anyway um because of my personality type so there was something really comforting to me from the outset about the idea that I could know what we were doing in a, in the context, especially of the pregnancy I've just described where I felt like everything was out of control the whole time. And I was grasping desperately for control, like a life raft with the diabetes and just constantly hungry and exhausted. Mm. <laughs> Such a fun way to be anyway. Um, and so then to get to the point where I was like, Oh, this is a thing that I can just do. And so both of my births with my daughters, both of which were planned cesareans, were fantastic. Mm. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. I'm so – every time I think about it, I'm relieved. Every time I think about it, I'm grateful that I had these births that were – I knew. I, yeah. like, and even the first – like the second time was incredible. It was just an amazing day. Um, the whole day was fantastic. It was just one of the best days of my life. And so as someone who – has is deeply passionate about control. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did you find having babies? 
Oh, well, <laughs> so it's so funny. You're so deeply passionate about control. I think the biggest lesson I've had to learn the last three years is to not have it um, and, and how, to, how to roll with the punches in a way that I, past me, had no idea I could do it. We talk about how motherhood is often, I think, about learning how strong you are in ways you could not have conceived of. And one of the biggest ways I've learned that about myself is my my ability to not have control when I would previously have thought that I could not cope with that. Mm. Someone, no, that's someone, you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you on the podcast. When you were talking about, I can't remember which episode it was, but um, I think it was when you were talking to Feli and there was that question, have you surrendered yet? Yes. That resonated with me so much because that's what it has been. It has been this constant process of surrender over and over and over of being like, okay, here's another thing. Here is another thing. Can you deal with another thing? Okay, here's another thing. Do the take this, deal with this, breathe through this. And I past me could not possibly have conceived of how okay I am now with not having control over things. Um but uh, that's a big lesson to learn, mm, though. Yeah, and especially if control is such a, a visceral part of who you are in your career. Well, that's it, and and trying to create um, systems and structures for other people that give them control over their lives. Trying to empower, give people a sense of empowerment over what's happening. Trying to go into a place that's pretty. Um, because family law relates so much to the individual details of every single person's case, the law necessarily deals with broad brushstrokes and, and kind of categories of things and um, there's guidance and there certainly are some things that you know, well, these are effectively, um, to use a non-legal term, the rules, right? But there's a lot of room for argument, there's a lot of room for advocacy. There's a lot of room to try to create a narrative and an idea um, to support your client's case. Because of that, when you're going in, you're trying to create, um, you're trying to get to a place where whatever the court orders are that are made, um, you're giving someone control over their life. You're giving them some control back. You're giving them some structure. So with that in mind, you know, when you talk about me and liking, liking control or wanting, wanting things to be under control or, or have that context, it's, it's something that I'm familiar with in that way as well. And so then thinking about surrendering control, when I think about my clients, I think about my practice, the way in which having babies myself has given me, I think, more of an insight into just how out of control everything can be for people in a visceral way that I don't think I could have understood until I've done it. One of the things that I've thought about often in terms of trying to navigate in my head what it was like before and after because I don't want to have a disrespect for, for my friends and colleagues who do this work who don't have kids. I don't want to in any way suggest that they aren't doing incredible work because it is. It's, it's, not a, it's not like you kind of can't do it without having had kids. But I was trying to kind of conceptualise how I felt about this before and after. And to me, it is like you can read everything there is about climbing a mountain. 
you can learn it, you can you can know the statistics, you can read memoirs, you can talk to people, you can do everything, but it is not going to replace the experience of having frostbite on the mountain. <laughs> so having a baby is like climbing Everest. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. Having a baby is absolutely climbing Everest. And, and you know, you, you just gain this, this colour of the rainbow, you gain this sense of awareness when you have physically done it. That was one thing. But the second thing that blew me away that was this huge change in terms of the before and after for me of the having having a child and having another child. Um, still kind of getting my head around that. It's been three months. I'm like, I have two children? Two? Really? Anyway. But um, the um, other thing that I didn't know at all was going to happen is about stories. As a family lawyer, you your stock in trade is people's stories. Your daily bread, your your every breath at work in in your career is other people's life stories. And I thought I had kind of a great awareness of the stories that there were about parenting because I had read thousands of them. And I have spoken to thousands of people about their parenting. And I have seen people argue about just about everything there is. I mean, I say this now, I plan to continue to work in the area for another couple of decades at least. So I'm sure I haven't seen it all and there's lots more to come. And every time you think, oh, I've seen it all, you're like, no, this is a new special thing. But anyway, I'd, I'd had this great exposure and, and, and awareness of the stories that people have in their lives. So I thought I had that. And then I became a mum and it was like all of these doors opened to women's stories and I realised I knew nothing. I did not know. The, the breadth and depth of the, physica, the physicality of it, the endurance, the power of what women go through and what we do in carrying babies to term, in giving birth, in raising our kids, in getting up every day and doing it again, I had no idea. And that has been a really transformative thing for me because I grew up um, surrounded by girls but not really feeling like very comfortable in groups of women. I always felt a bit like I was the only one out. I usually didn't say the right thing. That hasn't changed. Still the same. <laughs> but um, I didn't have this sense of female community and then had a baby. And then suddenly I was surrounded by female community in a way I'd never been, ever. And this sense of deep connection of motherhood of like, oh, my God, here are all these things we went through. And especially the first few weeks after having babies, which both times for me were extraordinarily hard psychologically incredibly difficult my body doesn't like the aftermath of pregnancy um when I listened to Kalai's episode and she talked about having an endorphin bomb I had the opposite of that I had a really rough that baby blues thing that kicks in around day four day five for me is like being hit with a, a depression Mack truck and that lasts for a couple of weeks and that happened both times and that was much easier the second time because I knew it was going to end, <laughs> this is a, which was a really good thing to know, but still very hard. But so 
then I would reach out to other women when I saw this coming for them mm. because I knew that that was what I needed so much was to have someone say, it's going to finish. This is a hormonal thing. You haven't slept in days. You feel like shit. It's going to be over. I promise. I promise you there is the other side. You're, gonna, you're nearly there. Breathe through it. You're going to get there. 3 a.m. is not as bad as it feels. <laughs> 3 a.m. feels pretty really rough. It's the worst <laughs> time. 5 a.m. is coming. Ooh. I was talking to someone the other day. I was like, 5 a.m. is the best part because at 5 a.m. you know you're almost through the night. The worst part is 2 a.m. because you've been up forever. <laughs> <laughs> Your whole life you have been awake with this baby. There is no time. It's the world's longest long haul flight. You can't get off the plane. You are stuck. With the baby anyway. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Well, one of the other challenges that you came up against, and it would have been in the midst of your Mack truck of baby blues, um, was breastfeeding. Oh, my God. (laughs) Of everything that was hard, breastfeeding was the hardest thing for me. It was... It was... (laughs) It's just an unmitigated nightmare. There were so many things that went wrong with it and we kept trying to get diagnosed and different people were diagnosed different things and it wasn't until I was about 10 weeks postpartum um, with my first that we had a lactation consultant come to our house. Um, you know, we tried so many things and then there was a delay and we couldn't get her there and blah, blah. anyway, and she finally came and was like, cool, the reason this hasn't been working for you is that you've got like four or five different things that are going wrong. Like your latch is wrong and you have low supply and you have this thing and you have this other thing and then there's also this problem. And I was like, cool, <laughs> good story, bro. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that explains a lot. And also can I like jump off a cliff? Is yeah. there one available? Like, <laughs> um, but uh, so my, my boobs got really damaged um, 
from the bad latch at the start, which then meant that we had to to try to maintain my supply. Um, the maternal child health nurse was like, you have to stop breastfeeding immediately. Uh, she looked at my boobs and I'll never forget my whole life. I think she said, yeah, you have several layers of damage. Thanks. That's not a phrase that anyone wants to hear about any part of their body, but really about my boobs, it was not what I wanted to hear. Um, and because I was on a reasonable amount of painkillers from the Caesar, I hadn't really clocked how bad that was until I started tapering off the painkillers at about two weeks postpartum when it became apparent that actually I needed them because I was in so much pain from my boobs. Yay. Um, and so then they said, okay, but now you need to pump every three or four hours around the clock to maintain your supply and keep trying to feed your baby. And, um, that was awful. And also like, I don't know if it was phrased to you as you just phrased it then, Mm. but that's not an option. And this was one of the things I found very difficult was I needed to someone to say to me, you don't have to do this. And I actually needed kind of to be told that quite a lot because the message I got given was really the opposite of that, was here are all the ways you can keep trying to succeed. Would you like an A-plus on your report card? Here are all the other things you haven't done yet. And I I have a real – it's not so much that I am – angry about or that I resent, although both of things are actually true, um, the narrative that women are given about both um, caesareans and breastfeeding in terms of what your options actually are. It's more that now every single time I talk to a pregnant woman, I say, you know this is okay. You know it's okay to choose to have a caesarean if that's what you want, do your research. But like, if that's something you think is going to suit you better, advocate for it, find what works for you. You don't have to do it another way. This is an option that's available to you. And in the same way, the amount of pressure, the amount of psychological and social pressure to breastfeed is immense. I know multiple women who have wound up in the psych ward from that. Multiple different women, not me, other people, who have wound up needing professional psychiatric inpatient help because the pressure to breastfeed and the pain of breastfeeding and the ripple effect of that pressure has led to that taking place. And that is insane. In the first world, when you can buy formula, it's not dangerous. Your baby will be okay. You will be okay. Your marriage, your children, your other children, like everyone will be okay. But that okayness is not communicated. Instead, what's communicated is here is an unbelievable laundry list of things that you should try bending over backwards to do um, to breastfeed your baby. And if you don't, are you really a good enough mother? I don't think people say so much anymore, you'd be a bad mother. No one's going to say it out loud. They don't need to. No, they don't need to say it directly because Mm. all of the other things say it indirectly. Yeah, that's it. And then, yeah, the message you get... And I just couldn't – there are so many ways in which I couldn't breastfeed. Um, suffice it to say, I did not breastfeed my second baby. <laughs> I was going to say, so how was that experience different? So the second time, even despite everything I'm describing, and the other thing – so one of the many things – I can't remember the name for this. There is a name for it. But I had the thing with my first daughter where um, your boobs hurt randomly – when you when you let when you have let down when you 
when the baby's on, when the baby's off. But also my boobs would hurt if she cried in another room. So like just randomly all the time stabbing pain. Just just add that in to everything. So even with all of these things, when I was pregnant with my second, there were times when my husband and I were like, should we do this again? Should we try? Maybe it'll be different. Maybe maybe the latch will be better. Maybe the, this baby will have a different shaped mouth. Maybe we should try this. And relatively late in my pregnancy, we went back and saw my wonderful obstetrician, Karen. We went and, and sort of said, oh, look, I mean, we, we're thinking about this. We might, you know, should we try this, blah, blah. And what was interesting was that as soon as we sort of opened that door, we got right back immediately to kind of the laundry list of here are all the things you could try and here's how you start and you could do this and you could do that. And blah, blah. And I pretty much started having an anxiety attack in the, as that was happening and I kind of, you know, stopped and went, I'm physically having quite a lot of anxiety about this right now. I don't think this is going to work. And bless her. She was like, cool. Okay, well, let's just take that off the table. We won't do that. And I was like, great. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, thank you Karen. I love you, Karen. Um, thank you, Karen. And from there on, it was the easiest thing in the world. And I have no regrets, none, about any of that, not doing it the second time. Dave and I have said to each other approximately a hundred times, thank God we didn't try breastfeeding the second baby. Um, and um, she's thriving and she's huge and she's happy and it's very easy feeding her and it has always been very easy feeding her and I have had no issues. So, yeah, that was a time. And really the second pregnancy physically was easier in every respect, um, which is good because the rest of my life was a special train wreck. So... The pregnancy part really needed to be easy because the world was not. No. And so we'll just touch on work again briefly. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Um, you did go back to work mm. when your eldest was five months? Four months. Just so tiny. And it, was that in a part-time, full-time? Um, a bit a bit of both with, is probably the most accurate answer to that question. So I did go back uh, to work remotely um, because court was on zoom and so that meant that then I was appearing in court in my bedroom of our two-bedroom apartment with my five four-month-old in the other room with my husband and talk about a non-ergonomic setup I was sitting on a little Ikea stool because that's what we had (laughs) and of course I couldn't go out and buy anything and even if I had gone and bought something there wouldn't have been anywhere to put it um, and like my laptop was propped up on textbooks on the bed because that's where there was a white wall behind me. So what court could see is me in my suit with the white wall and what anyone else would have been able to see was piles of laundry on my bed <laughs> and me negotiating on a computer, which none of us had done before. You're on mute, you know, forever, bloody, yeah. Anyway, um, so I went back to court and I went back to work and then, you know, we'd we'd sort of pause court. Um, you know, people would say, okay, we'll go off and do, you know, negotiate, get on the phone, do some stuff that normally you do in person. It all became on the phone. And um, I'd go out to my living room and cuddle a baby and then make a phone call and then go back to court in the bedroom. And it was very weird. Like you, you, the human race have an extraordinary capacity for adaption, you know, to... to to cope with things that they didn't see coming. Um, and that whole situation was one I didn't see coming. Um, none of us saw coming. But 
the way in which I returned to work. There was the silver lining, of course, of I didn't have to leave my baby. You know, I was really lucky in that respect. I could still see her every day. Or, you know, she was there all the time. But then you'd have a really long day and you'd be like, I'm fully drained and there's no way, there's no gap, there's no break. Trying to have a boundary between the sort of stuff I deal with at work and the stuff and, and home. Um is really challenging and the way in which you deal with it. How do you deal with being exposed to so much family violence? How do you deal with being exposed to so much trauma? How do you deal with the stories? And it's a muscle you build up over a really long time Um, and it's something you do if you're really passionate about the work. And I've always been really passionate about the work. I think it is an incredible honour and a privilege to get to do my job. Um, the thing I was sort of trying to say is in terms of having boundaries and, and working from home, one of the ways you build that muscle up over time, one of the ways you do the job, one of the ways you cope with what you do is by having the separateness of court being court and home being home. And that when you turn up to do your job, you're leaving home somewhere else. You're leaving that role somewhere else. I don't talk about myself at work. I don't talk about my life or my kids or my anything. That's not – I'm not there for that – when I'm doing my job, my job is about other people. And so one of the things that was so hard about going back was the lack of boundaries. It was 7pm phone calls. It was everything's getting emailed to you at random times and you need to read it. It was people not respecting, you know, if we're all working from home anyway, well, does it matter if I call you at 8 o'clock at night? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does actually. Don't do it. <laughs> I won't answer the phone. But the thing is that then you do you do answer the phone because it's someone's life you know and it it's very difficult to figure out okay well yes but it's always someone's life you know but it's also yours yeah and it's something I always kind of try and come back to and tell myself is um it's really important for me to look after my mental health for me to look after my life for me to recharge take enough holidays not work too much not for myself alone, but because that's how I do my job better. If I don't take care of those aspects of myself, I don't bring my A game because I can't be as I can't be the emotional receptacle for other people's trauma. If I, if I'm not if I'm broken, <laughs> if I'm a broken receptacle, I'm not going to hold the trauma as well, which is a really messed up way of describing it. But it's kind of true. Like if you're not at your strongest mentally if you're not okay you can't be that okayness for someone else what you've just said about work is what several psychologists have said to me about parenting oh that's so interesting it's it's exactly the same if you don't look after yourself Mm. and your own mental well-being how can you then be the support for your your tiny humans yeah for sure for sure for sure and it's amazing to me how much overlap there is between the two things. I was thinking about it and I was thinking about us having this conversation um, this morning or last night, one of those nebulous, blurry times, um, <laughs> and about how similar the experiences of being a parent and being a family law barrister in that if to turn up at the start of the day with a huge, deep well of patience and empathy and willingness 
to be yelled at about things that seem pretty intense and also maybe some things you can't control or fix. And that very, very deep well, often by the end of the day, will be completely exhausted and yet somehow the next day you get up and you do it all over again. And what I just described is equally true for my job and parenting a toddler. It's the same skill. (laughs) And so what's something empowering that you would say to parents? Oh, my gosh. I literally wrote a list of stuff (laughs) and none of it is mine. It's all the things I got um, different places. Um, I can't remember if this is something that has already been said on the podcast because I think that the podcast is where I got it from, but I love it, which is that whether you breastfeed, bottle feed, pump, mix feed, whatever, you're still going to have a two-year-old who eats chips off the floor. Yeah, Nikki said it in that yeah, one. And I love it so much. That has every – like I reckon I've thought about that every 48 hours since I listened to that <laughs> like a few months ago. Um Dave and I half joke, half honestly talk about um, our house being a parent's first house, <laughs> um, which makes us sound like unbelievably terrible human beings, but um, we, we, I promise we're not. Um, but just that we have to look after ourselves. And there's a really weird social pressure, I think is very the last 20, 30 years of like, oh no, your kids have to be put first and you have to do everything for them and they're, you know, whatever they need and blah, And it's like, it's not that they don't need stuff, but all of us need stuff. Yes. All of us need stuff. And it's important that everyone's needs get met. And sometimes that means saying no. I'm a big fan of the power of saying no. Um, partly because I think women aren't taught to do it and are told not to do it. One of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten, which applies to parenting but also life, is no is a complete sentence. Yes. <laughs> do not explain, do not apologise, do not equivocate, do not add to No. No. And then stop. I'm also a big fan of the power of silence. Believe it or not, despite the fact that I have been yammering <laughs> away, um, there is a tremendous usefulness, and this is something, again, that, I find with work that I also think you can bring across to parenting. Sometimes the most powerful thing you can do is be silent and let the other person fill the space and give them as much space as they need and see what comes out. Because often that's where the gold is. Um, My mum would show up um, the first few weeks after my second daughter was born when I was in that baby blues place, which I feel like we shouldn't call it that because it sounds so diminutive yeah it's a really um it's a shit 1950s phrase. phrase yeah i mean it's it, the, yeah the, the brutal hormone bomb of pain is probably <laughs> just less snappy Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> yeah. um but she would turn up and like i would just be standing there like weeping in my kitchen about nothing like literally about nothing um just being generally overwhelmed and she would like when she left at the end of the, the day she would often say to me you are doing an incredible job and I would feel like she was being a bit crazy because I got quite. I was like, "Lady, can you, you know, <laughs> you mental?" She's like, "You got up this morning. You are doing an incredible job." Her saying, "You are doing an incredible job." It was what every mum should get told every single day yeah. for it's at least the first two or three months of their baby's life, and probably the next twenty or thirty years. You're doing an incredible job. I think that's good. Um, the other few things, um, my friend Ryan was one of my friends I've been friends with Ryan since we were in our late teens and we were really good mates and um but he said early on with my elder daughter 
I remember him saying, everything is a stage. Everything. Everything is a stage. In this way that was like, here is your, these are the Ten Commandments. <laughs> like, everything is a stage. And I've thought back on that often um, because it's so helpful when you feel like you are in, you know, again, like the longest plane flight of your life is when, you know, your toddler will not stop having a tantrum or the seventh day in a row they refuse to eat anything that's not bread or whatever. And then the other thing he said that isn't about parenting um, specifically, but I think he's very applicable, which I really needed to learn a few years ago and I'm still probably in the process of learning and I wrote this down because I wanted to get it right. Um, Let people love you. Specifically, let your friends love you by letting them see you be vulnerable because if they see you be vulnerable, you are giving them permission to be vulnerable with you. Did he write that? I don't know. I think so. He he was telling me, you know, and, and he said, you know, it's only when you show someone else your vulnerability, you're giving them permission. It's a gift. You being weak is a gift. And I never got that before, ever. I always kind of just thought that I should be the strongest person in the room if I could be because then I wasn't putting it on anyone else. I wasn't giving anyone a burden by giving them my pain or by giving them my fears or by, by, by expecting anything of them in a friendship. And this thing he said, I think genuinely changed my life, this idea that by sharing our vulnerability, and this is why I think it applies so much to parenting, especially new motherhood in matrescence, is that it's such a vulnerable time. It's the most vulnerable I've ever been. And it would have been so easy for me to think that I had to hide that away. Um, and instead, the friendships I've formed with people and the, or, or deepened with people where I was friends with them before and then through becoming parents, the friendships have become so much more profound and important to me. Um, and I think both, you know, everyone in those friendships. Um, it's through shared vulnerability. And I had not gotten that. It's funny, um, Dave and I were talking to a friend recently about friendships in your late 20s and, like, that process of figuring out who your real friends are and who's just a drinking buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Who are your uni leftover friends when you're like, we get drunk together a lot, but I don't know that that's going to transcend into, like, the next stage. And um, and our friend who's much younger was saying, I think it might have been my sister, was saying, like, how do you know, you know, what, what makes a friendship, like what takes it to the next level? And he kind of went, oh, yeah, you know, like hanging out and having drinks. And I went, what? No, trauma. <laughs> and then I, like it was one of those real knee-jerk reactions where I hadn't thought about it before I said it. And I was like, all of my close female friendships, every single one has been formed one way or another through sharing trauma, sharing vulnerability. One of my best friends I've known since we were eight and ten respectively, and we became good friends when we got divorced at the same time. That's how long it took. We were friends before that, but simultaneously getting divorced is what meant that we became really close. And then we were in each other's weddings as maid of honour when we got remarried. That's nice. Yeah, she's the best. Um, but, like, these, these, they, that's like a life cycle, isn't it? Yeah. You know, like, um, and those, those things. Anyway, and then the, the last thing I'd say that I wrote down, which is, which is actually probably just more funny that this stuck in my head than as much as it did. Um, trust the captain, trust the crew. Figure out who your people are around you that you love, who are your people, 
and let them hold you, which is kind of like what I was saying just before, but it's another way. It's a, it's a pithier way of saying it. Um, but the hilarious thing is that when I was trying to think about the advice, this phrase kept like, what? Cause I knew you were going to probably ask me this question. This phrase kept going in my head, trust the captain, trust the crew, trust the ca-. I was like, who said this to me? Where did I get this from? I got this from somewhere. I didn't make it up. I don't know where this came from. I had to Google it. <laughs> and then I remembered it was only by Googling it that I figured it out. This phrase comes from the, so when I had the second baby, and I'd had this second cesarean, I was pretty much stuck in the bedroom, on the bed, recovering, feeding her, and she did not sleep well the first two months and she wanted to feed every two hours, pretty much all the time. I spent a lot of time on my own in a dark room on painkillers. <laughs> and it was, and I had the, the nasty hormone bomb I described. So it was not fun and I desperately needed something really comforting, like really just soul food for myself to watch on TV for the long, long, long hours of doing this. And so I turned to, because again, as we've established, I'm a peak nerd, the West Wing. <laughs> That's not escapism. It was for me. It was this idyllic past political version of America. I thought you were going to say like the Simpsons or no, Sex in the City yeah, or something. This, You're like, this is my I personality. the West Wing. I did because it took me back to my happy place, which is, as we'll recall, people arguing with each other. <laughs> and this genuinely it was so comforting to watch all these smart people arguing about things it reminded me that I was going to get to go back to being myself one day um anyway it's a quote from the West Wing <laughs> about something totally unrelated to parenting but that's what stuck in my brain was this quote from Sam Seaborn trust the captain I think I don't remember which character but anyway trust the captain trust the crew and yeah, and, and figure out what your happy place is. Turns out mine is the West. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, this may not be worth the time to, to, to say this, but that was the thing I was afraid of the most, um, especially with my first pregnancy, was losing my brain. The people that say, you know, that quote, like, you never get your brain back. Um, one of the very worst moments of my first pregnancy was when I was extremely tired and, and really, really, really struggling. And a well-meaning friend said this to me in a kind of like, you know, I, 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 was, I don't remember how it even came up. Her kids are like late teens. And she was like, oh, you just never get your brain back. And I kind of just didn't say anything. And I walked into another room, like I walked into the bathroom and shut the door and sobbed my face off. <laughs> it's just, and, it, and especially because I knew that it wasn't coming from a, a place of malice or but it was literally like someone had coalesced all of my worst fears and said them to me and I felt unbelievably terrible. And it's not true. <laughs> um, what I think is true when I was thinking about what matrescence meant for me, it wasn't that it was a change in who I was. It was that it was an evolution into my most self. Um, and for me... Like it's whoever you already were that you lean into the parts of yourself that are the truest, the strongest, hopefully the best. <laughs> Who knows? On that, that jury's still out on that one. But um, for me, becoming a mother has made me more the way I already was. I was already focused, intense, driven into lists, really about using all the time I had available to me and caring a lot. 
Like I was always, I can't, I can't do things a little bit. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm all in all the time. I think it's one of the nice things about coming to parenthood in your mid-30s is you're okay with who you are. I'm okay with who I am. It took a long time, but I'm really like, I like those things about myself. And they were what I was afraid to lose. And instead what's happened is that they've kind of become more me. And those things are more, they're just more. And God, <laughs> if you want a job done, give it to a mum, she'll find the time. <laughs> if I thought I was really, really good at finding the time before, oof, should see me now. There is a list in every, every diary day. There's, there's always a list. Do you find that stressful? Oh, I love it. Oh, my God. I don't, what, the making a list every day? No, no, I like lists too. But does having – it sounds like having a list of things that you need to do actually makes you feel better. Oh, so much better. And importantly, that was one of the ways – that was one of my biggest coping mechanisms in the first lockdown and when I had a baby – was really really important to me psychologically it was one of the best things I did actually was every day I would write down the things to do and I just made them really small but then ticking them off made me realize I had done something so I never felt like you know that thing people talk about of like oh but I didn't you know what did I, I didn't even do anything today? today you know I would write down okay and, and I remember the things because it was the same every day every day I was going to go outside the house Every day I was going to meditate, even if it was just for five minutes. I have an app on my phone. Again, managing your mental health is something you owe everyone else, not just yourself. I'm really not fun to be around when I don't do that, so I try really hard to do it um, for my husband, if no one else. Um, to be clear, he also meditates every day. What else? Read some fiction. That was a thing that I put on my list, um, and it was, again, I could just read a page. And then um, also I was writing a novel. So I did that too. <laughs> so I was like, write 500 words a day, which even my writer friends um, who all write novels as well were like, you're a lunatic. And I was like, yeah, but I'm on maternity leave. <laughs> all this time. Yeah. <laughs> I, do, I, so I do often look back on the fact that I did that. I'm like, you're a special lunatic, Eliza. <laughs> and anyway, so I also wrote a novel um, in – the last two years so that was great um and I had a good time doing it most of the time thank you so much for today it's such a pleasure I'm so glad we got to do this me too and in person yes oh, not in not in lockdown the best so nice to not be in lockdown <sighs> Thank you so much to Eliza for chatting with me today. There are some links in the show notes for information on cesarean births and gestational diabetes. There is also a link to The Separation Guide, which is an online resource that can help you navigate separation and divorce and connect you with legal, financial and wellbeing professionals. Mummification is produced and hosted by me, Brodie Matner. Our beautiful music is composed by Ben Talbot Dunn. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review and subscribe. You'll be notified when a new episode is released and it helps us reach new audiences, which in turn will hopefully help more women feel less alone. Thanks for listening.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.